Thanks. Uh, man, are we blessed with our bands and our worship music, yeah? It was, uh, yeah, why don't we just say a thank you. Thank you, applause. Yeah, thanks. Plugged in. Whoa, fantastic. I particularly liked the D note. Well, that's <laughs> that, that is great. We feel very, very blessed um, with the with the musos we have. Thank you, thank you so much for blessing us, Blair. Also, the announcement: 2020 is a big year for us. Um, we get to kind of reimagine church. We're looking at uh, clarifying a number of things. We've, I know this bit sounds boring, but for some of us, it's really exciting. We get to rewrite our constitution because our constitution only refers to one campus. I know, some of you have just fell asleep right then, just like that, constitution. <laughs> but it's actually exciting because that's the stuff that kind of supports how we do what we do. And, and so um, it's, a, it's an exciting year ahead of us. The AGM coming up, we've got a couple of vacancies for church council, be praying about the sort of people um, in our midst who can fill those vacancies and so forth. And, and I trust that... Um, um, I trust that you enter into all of our church life here at the Vine in 2020 with a sense of anticipation about what God is going to do. The most exciting part, um, without a doubt, though, is gathering together. And these are, I, I often say, kind of uh, this bit is a little bit like um, uh, being at a large banquet, maybe like a wedding feast or something like that. This is the entree. This is us all kind of mingling together as one big crowd. We're getting little entree hors d'oeuvres, which are kind of giving us a taste for what's more to come. And, and then we have other gathering spaces like growth groups and so forth. That's when we kind of, if you can imagine going into the banquet and sitting at a table now with a smaller group of people and getting into the meaty stuff and, and, um, um, and, and being able to chat there. And then there are other opportunities that we have around the place as well to, to peel off, just like you might. Again, at a banquet, once the desserts and the coffees come around, sometimes you even change seats. You, you talk to the person that you really wanted to talk to. And then in twos and threes and that sort of a thing, you, you have even, even smaller discussions again. Um, that's, that's church. Lots of connections with, with people and growing together to be more and more like Jesus, sharing that with the world. Tonight, I'm kind of excited about the passage we have to share. It's, it's at once um, perhaps one of the most um, astonishing um, encouragements to Christians worldwide, historically speaking, and at the same time, um, it is addressing one of the greatest deceptions that ever entered the church. It's an it's a incredible passage. There's a couple of verses here that if you haven't already memorized them, you need to take these verses home. You need to memorize them and think about them every day. And we're going to get into, into that in just a moment. But this is God's word. So we need God to speak. So why don't we, why don't we pray? And, and as you're sitting there, um, maybe you just would like to take a moment, turn your heart towards Father and, and invite him to speak to you. I ask Ask him, is there something in particular, Father, that you would like to talk to me about tonight? Just take a moment. Turn your affection and attention towards him. Invite him to come and speak to you. And as each of these prayers are silently being offered up, Heavenly Father, 
We know you hear them and you receive them. Would you answer our cry tonight? And by your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, come and now minister to us through your Word. Amen. Well, if you're new today or you haven't picked it up yet, my name's Stuart Hunt and um, lead pastor here at The Vine, which is just such a wonderful privilege. Um, wasn't always. Many, many years ago, I um, kind of straight out of school, worked with Victoria Police. And I kind of graduated fairly high in the academy, and I probably could have chosen virtually anywhere to, to work. Um, but there was a rumor going around that if you didn't put in for a particular group called City Traffic, it was the nickname for the Melbourne District Traffic and Patrol Division. I don't know if you've ever seen old Melbourne postcards of policemen standing in the intersections with big white gloves and directing traffic, and that was us, that was us, the Melbourne District Traffic and Patrol Division. Woo! Um, city traffic, if you didn't put in for them, you were probably going to get sent to protective services or something like that. Protective services was just really, really boring. It was kind of protecting people who maybe you wanted to protect them, maybe you didn't. I don't know, but it was boring. And the one thing I knew is, well, I kind of, I could probably, whatever I put in, I'm probably going to get it. I'm going to put in for city traffic. Turns out the rumor was wrong. I probably could have got any station in Victoria I wanted, but now I was stuck in city traffic for 18 months, which was actually, under God's providence, was the very, very best thing. I loved it. The first six months, I was a junior myself, just a fresh recruit out of the academy. The next 12 months, actually, um, all the new recruits would come our way, and I would, I would get to uh, patrol the city streets back when they did that sort of thing. Um, now, I don't, know, I don't know what happened. I think you just phone for police and they may or may not come. But we used to actually proactively patrol the city streets. And, and at night, I'd often have a young recruit with me and we'd be walking down particular streets and because of elm trees, buildings and just lighting and so forth, um, frequently uh, there was a dark side of the street and there was a light side of the street. And human, human nature, you want to walk to the, the light side of the street. It feels safer. There was more people there. It was well lit. That's where you actually wanted to walk. And I would always walk to the dark side of the street. And often, often, you know, I'd, I'd get these new recruits who sort of, oh, why do we have to walk on that side? And I would often say, listen, I have a vague interest in the people on the, the light side of the street. But my real interest is who is walking on the dark side. That's what we're here for. And... Um, I used to have to sort of teach the difference between the dark side and the light side. In a sense, that's, what, that's exactly what John is, is doing in our passage. We started a series a couple of weeks ago in 1 John, and, and John is talking about light and darkness, and he's comparing the two. As we go on in the book, we'll see that, that, that light is an image for righteousness and life, and darkness is an image for sinfulness and death. And John uses this contrast to great effect to um, teach the, the early church. And he's talking here about the futility of the dark side and the benefits of the light side and, and why you would want to walk on that particular side of the street. As I said, we're about to address perhaps one of the greatest reassurances to every Christian, historically speaking, but it stems from one of the most wicked deceptions and lies that the enemy has sown. That, that deception 
We call it Gnosticism, and I touched on that a little bit last week. It's all about this secret knowledge, I know things, that uh, certain teachers were espousing. And, and that deception was quite simply that uh, certain, certain teachers amongst the, the church, um, there in Ephesus and around a circuit of churches, um, certain teachers were enlightened ones. Oh, they knew things. <laughs> if only you could know what we know. They were kind of superior and so forth. And in particular, their particular bent was that we have attained moral perfection. We have attained moral perfection. There is no sin in us, and, and we're there. We're there. We are above sin and so forth. And that's what John is, is trying to address here. He does it in an interesting fashion, six propositions, and you'll be able to see them in the passage, because each one starts with if. Every time you look in this passage, you see the word if. It's one of his six little propositions, which are basically saying, if this, then that. If this, then that. Let me read it to you. Let's or actually, I'm going to ask somebody to come and read it too. I, I forgot for a moment. We actually had Kate. Would you like to come and read this too? Kate was lined up. She's going to read to you First John chapter 1, verse 5 through to chapter 2, verse 2. You good with the microphone? Thanks, Kate. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Great. Thanks so much, so much, Kate. So I, I trust that you're able to follow those six propositions, if this, then that, as, as John sort of outlines this, this passage. He is um, essentially, um, he's saying that if this is your stand, on a particular issue, if you say this, if this is your stand, I'll expose where you're standing. Are you standing on the dark side of the street or are you standing on the light side of the street? You tell me what your stand is and I'll tell you where you're standing, in the darkness or in the light. And he goes on and he goes, One, this, is, this is somebody standing in the darkness, this is somebody standing in the light, this is somebody standing in the darkness, light, darkness, light, and so forth as we go through the passage. Of course, once again, and I mentioned this briefly last week, um, what we know about Gnosticism, we don't know it from this particular book because John doesn't even bother to, to kind of deconstruct that. Not here. Um, what we know is about Gnosticism, we know from other writings. John just goes for it. He says, listen, I know, I know what I know because I actually walked this earth with Jesus. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. I, I am telling you what I heard from Jesus Christ himself. 
And that's how he starts off verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him, and that is what I'm declaring to you. And then he goes on and he says, and this is his major premise. Everything else builds from, builds from this. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, this is a funny concept for us to get around. I guess we might kind of think of a room filled with light such as this and think God is light, like a room full of light. Not quite. Why? Because it doesn't matter where we are in this room, we can create a shadow. We might even be creating the shadow by our own presence. We could look over there in the corner or up here and we will see shadows. We will see parts where, where the light is compromised. But John is not saying God is like light or, or God is full of light. John is saying God is light. He's the very source of light. And as you know, if you think about a source of light, and I don't recommend you looking at the spots or anything like that, but there is no shadow in the sun. There is no shadow in a source of light, for that light is pure. And John is saying God is light. And in him, there is no darkness, no, no darkness at all. Wherever God is, he totally dispels the darkness, for he is light in its purest and fullest form. So therefore... If you are walking in darkness, you are not walking with God. It's quite simple. If you are walking in darkness, you are not walking with God. Can't be. It's incompatible. You cannot be in darkness and be walking with God, for God is light, and in him there is no darkness. See, it's a very, very simple premise, isn't it? But now he kind of explains to us how this unfolds. Remember before I was, I was talking a little bit about... Um, darkness uh, referring to sin and, and death. Let me just unpack that for a moment. Um, in John chapter 2, verse 28, just over the chapter, uh, he actually says this, Now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And in chapter 3, verse 4, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin, here's a little definition for you, sin is lawlessness. Somebody has said um, that sin is, you know, like shooting for a target but missing the mark. Correct, and yet let's, let's, just, let's just expand that definition for a moment. In terms of God's holiness and his righteousness, yes, it, it's, it's like sin is anything that is not pinpoint center with the very, very character of God. Absolutely, that is, that is true. And, and around that is framed a, a number of laws and principles that actually, actually tell us what the character of God is like. When we miss it, we have sinned. Um, my brother and I used to love backyard cricket. In our imaginations, our backyard was the MCG, um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was epic. Um, we got tired one day of um, tossing the bat, um, to see actually who was going to bat first and, and who, who wasn't, and uh, decided, let's get a little bit more creative. We found an old chisel in the backyard that Dad had left lying around, and I guess we must have seen a movie somewhere where you could throw a knife and it would, you know, spin into the, into the lawn, and, and so we decided, okay, whoever can, uh, can toss the chisel into the lawn and get it to stick, they get to bat first. Years ago, uh, telephones used to be connected to a line, which used to be connected to a socket, which used to be connected to a wall, which explains why mum was in the dining room at the time of the great chisel throwing. And 
It explains why also mum was shocked and horrified when the chisel came through the dining room window. I was shocked and horrified. Everyone was shocked and, and horrified. Um, throwing the chisel was one thing. Um, meeting dad afterwards was another. I knew uh, I had missed the mark. I'd missed the lawn, the footpath, the garden bed, the six foot wall. Somehow I, I got the dining room window. It was at least 10 feet above the ground level. So it was actually not a bad shot all things considered. However, not what we were supposed to be doing. Um, on the one hand, it was something to deal with mum's shock and horror. On the other hand, I was not looking forward to that conversation with dad when he came home. And truth is, when he saw the window, when he saw the chisel, he relationship would need to be restored. And, and that's kind of sin, if you like. On the one hand, um, chapter 3, verse 4, uh, sin is lawlessness. There was a bit of that going on in the backyard. The law was, don't throw chisels through windows. I don't know if it had ever been stated. I somehow intuitively knew that that was the law. I had broken the law, but more than that, I had broken relationship as well. If you like, that were the, you know, there are sins and there is sin, the problem of sin. There are sins, the things we do outside the law, there is the problem of sin, the relationship with God that is broken off. That relationship had to be restored. But how do you know if you have sinned or not, if you've broken the law? Probably this. In the same way that I was not looking forward to that chat with Dad because I knew relationship was broken, John says this in chapter 2, 28, Dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If we are confident and unashamed of God when he comes then we know we're in relationship with him and all is good, right? But if when God comes, we are not feeling so confident and we are feeling a little bit ashamed, probably we have a problem with sin. And that is what, what John is addressing here. If you have sinned and you are out of relationship with God because of the problem of sin, that needs to be addressed. You are walking in darkness, and the fellowship that you think you have with God, you really do not have with God at all. How do you know? Well, are you feeling confident and unashamed at his coming? I know with dad that day, I was, I was not. And John is essentially saying here that, that our, our sins are like the chisel that is missing the mark, but our sin is like the relationship with God that, that gets broken and it needs to be fixed. So he rightly says in verse 6, you know, if you claim to have fellowship with him, but you are walking in the darkness, you're just not living in the truth. You're just, you are just not living in reality. And so John now wants to unpack for us light and darkness. And, and light, he says, deals with sin. Darkness denies sin. Light, as we'll see in a moment, deals with sin. Darkness denies sin. And so the next few propositions are dealing with, firstly, the futility of darkness, and then the others are dealing with, and they're interspersed somewhat, the benefits of light. So firstly, let's real, real quick look at the futility of, of darkness. We see in verse 8 that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. In other words, if we claim that we have no sin, 
we are lying to ourselves. Now look at verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make, out, we make him, God that is, out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Verse 8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we're lying to ourselves. If we claim to have never sinned, we are lying about God. We're essentially saying that God is a liar, and that's akin to denying him. We might say, well, that is a really bad thing. I'm never going to be a Gnostic. But it's not just Gnosticism where this can be a little bit of a, a problem for us. Think about it. Even in the Christian life, have you ever been tempted to, to deny that you have done something wrong, you have sinned, that you are out of relationship with God? Probably, I would say, um, at this point, probably the biggest danger for us is not actually an accusation that comes from the accuser, from the evil one, about something we legitimately have done. Most of the time, if we have said something, thought something, or done something that's wrong, and the accuser comes and convicts us of it, the Holy Spirit is right there as well, saying there's hope here. You simply have to confess this and we can move on. Probably what I would say is a bigger problem in the Christian life sometimes, and yeah, there are those sins that we just don't want to admit, but probably the bigger problem for us as Christians sometimes is not the real accusations, but the false accusations. The false accusations, because we know they're false, can take us down a road where we want to justify ourselves. We've been falsely accused of something, and we want to basically stand up on our soapbox and say, well, that is not right. That is not right. And as soon as we do that, we are going down a dangerous path of self-justification. That is a really hard one because of pride. That is a really hard one to return from, which is why I suspect when Jesus was falsely accused, he just remained silent, just zipped. He just did not give an answer. Why? He knew who his judge was. He knew there is only one judge that I have to give an answer to. It's God, my Father, and I know where I stand with, with him. So it's one thing to say, I have not sinned. We're just lying to ourselves. It's another thing to say, I've never sinned. Then we are calling God a liar, and, and that also is a dangerous path. That is essentially denying God, denying God. So then John moves on. That's the futility of darkness. He moves on to the benefits of walking in the light. You don't want to walk in darkness. You want to walk in light. And so here are some verses which have brought incredible comfort to Christians over the, over the centuries. Have a look at, at verse 7. There are two benefits here. Can you see them? Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, first benefit, we have fellowship with one another, second benefit, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Two benefits. We have fellowship with one another, second benefit, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. We're covered. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how many times we've done it. We're covered. We're covered every time. And the one leads to the, leads to the other. There is a sense in which, as we understand that Jesus has purified me for all sin, I have no trouble believing that he's also purified you from your sin. If I can believe it for myself, I can believe it for you. Why is that a good thing? Well, that now enables us to have fellowship together, doesn't it? If I can believe the purifying work of Jesus in my life, I can believe the purifying work of Jesus for your life as well. And that's the basis in which we have fellowship. We can actually get along as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. The one actually leads to the other. 
And now, John, because it's so important to understand the incredible power and grace that is available, that Jesus is able to purify us from all sin, he unpacks that a little bit more. Again, with yet another, another proposition. Firstly, in verse 9, he says, this is what God will do. And then in, in verse 12, uh, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, he says, this is how God has done it. Verse 9, what will God do? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is, this is one of the ones to memorize. Remember I said there's a couple of verses in here. You really have to memorize. If you have never memorized 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, write it down. That's one to memorize this week. An incredible verse. Um, often, uh, the outworking of it is like this. Um, maybe in the morning, maybe in midday, maybe at the end of the day, you, you turn your attention and affection to God, and you know that something is not quite right. Relationship is broken a little bit. It's like not looking forward to dad coming home. There's that chisel incident that we have to, we have to talk about. Um, we turn our attention and our affection to God, and, and we know, ah, I know, <laughs> I know why I'm not looking forward to this, to this chat right now. There was, that, there was that moment with the chisel. Now, it might, the chisel just symbolizes anything that could be in your life that is blocking fellowship with God. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sin, um, that means agreeing with God that it is wrong. Um, Dad, we were getting creative with how to choose who was going to bat next. You know, we had an idea which in retrospect wasn't a great idea, and I think we probably should have picked it. Um, I was standing towards the house when I threw the chisel, never done it before, and I had no idea of the incredible strength and power genetically you have passed to me. No, I wouldn't try that. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong. And it is agreeing with my dad it was wrong to carelessly throw the chisel. The repercussions stand for itself. Confession of sin is agreeing with God that it is wrong. We have in some way fallen short of his glory, his, his righteous demands. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, meaning that we are being cleansed and we can slip back into that righteous robe which he, he gives us, clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. Okay? That seems simple enough, doesn't it? But what often happens at this point? We confess our sin and then we trip. I can't believe, <laughs> I can't believe that he would forgive me my sin. We confess our sin again and we trip. I can't believe that he would cleanse me from all unrighteousness. There's this stumbling moment where the evil one seems to rob this verse of its merit. What's happening? What's happening there? I would say this. We're doubting the character of God. What does John say? He says, if you confess your sin, who is faithful? God. Who is just? God. That's his character. He's faithful. He's just. He then will do what he says. He will forgive us our sin and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How do we know that's true? Because of the very character of God. God is faithful. God is just. He will do what he says he was going to do. And it is based on the character of God that we can be sure there is a correlation towards our, forgive, our confession and his forgiveness. Our confession, his forgiveness, is complete on the basis of his character. Do you know, that is so important to hang on to. Wonderful verse to memorize. 
I challenge you to do all of that. And a wonderful verse to, to understand the implications. That's what God is going to do. How does he do that? How does he do that? That's where we come to chapter 2, verses 1 or 2. Here the father, the church father, John, hear his heart here. My dear children, like I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. He's not writing this to us so that we kind of know, ha, huh, I've got a hall pass, I've got a license, I've got to get out of jail free card, I've got whatever. That's not why John is making this promise and reminding us of this. Not at all. He doesn't want us to treat grace like a doormat and wipe our feet on it. He says that, I'm, I'm hoping as I write this that you won't sin. But if you do sin, if you do sin, here's my, here's my um, um, promise to you. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We have an advocate. He is the atonement for our sins. How does, how does that work? All right. Hopefully, you've never been to court before. But I want you to imagine that we're in a courtroom, uh, an earthly courtroom, just for a moment. All right. Um, I've been in many courtrooms over, over the years, but for mostly the right reasons. Well, all the right reasons, I think, for my memory. Imagine that you are in the gal gallery. You're over there because your friends or families of the accused or the media, and this is just an absolutely sensational thing, and you want to report on it. By the way, you're in the gallery. Um, up there is, is the judge. In this case, it's not a magistrate, nor a county court judge, nor a Supreme Court judge, nor a high court judge. This is the judge. This is God. There is no appeal beyond this. And so God is, God is, God is up there. Um, that's the gallery. You, the accused in this particular matter, in this proceeding, are going to be over here with the defense team. And then over here is the, is the prosecution team. And they're going to accuse you of, of something, and they're going to prove their case, and uh, you're going to have to defend yourself. So this is the way this seems to unpack. Satan, the accuser, he stands behind his table, and he levies accusations against you. And you know what? Amongst them, there might be some false accusations and so forth, but the problem is there is also a bunch of stuff in there that you just can't deny. You know I did that. I said it. I thought it. I did it. Or maybe an omission, a sin of omission. I didn't do it, and I should have done it. Uh, Paul, Romans 7, there are things I hate I end up doing, and things I should have done I just don't do. Somehow, you know, as the accuser has confronted you with your sins, man, my life is like one big chisel-throwing competition, and there are smashed windows everywhere and plenty of witnesses. I'm done. And the accuser finishes, and, and so the judge says, how do you plead? Now, your advocate is who? Jesus, the mediator. He is with you. And you lean over to Jesus, and you say, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I really am. And Jesus puts an arm around your shoulder, and he says, I've got this. He addresses the judge on your behalf. And he says, judge, you, you may recall that this matter has come before the court before. And God says, yes, it has. Kind of used to chisel throwing. And you may recall that, that I pleaded guilty on this charge. Yes, I do. 
I recall that. And you may recall that you handed down your punishment, the sentence. Yes, I do. And you may recall that I took that punishment, I accepted it, and I have paid for it in full. I have done the time, I have served the sentence, I have taken the punishment for this particular crime and all the other crimes. And God the Father says, yes, you have. Yes, you have. I remember every drop of your blood, and it's sufficient. So Jesus then turns to us, and he says, here's the thing. I've actually pled guilty to this. I have paid the penalty for this. Do you agree to roll all of your sin? Do you agree to roll all of that into my docket, into my conviction? And you're over here and you're saying, mate, can't do that. This is wrong. It's not fair. It's not just. No, I did this. You shouldn't take the blame. Jesus, I know that. I know I shouldn't. There is nothing fair or just about this. It's just that this is your only way forward. You say, there's got to be something I can do. I cannot, I cannot ask you to wear this for me. No. There's something I can do. Parole. You know, I, I can do some time myself. There's, there's a way I can fix this. I've just got to figure out how. Back to Jesus. Trust me. The judge is my father. It's, it's, not, it's not what you did. It's who you did it against. He's the king. He's the creator. He's the Lord of all. He's God. There is no wriggle room here. There is no way out, and there is no way you can fix it. This carries the death sentence. It's very simple. Let me lay it out for you. You roll all of that over into my conviction, or you die. There are no other options. So you start to think about that and think, there's something I can do, right? Pride is rising up inside of you, and you're thinking, surely there's a way through this. And you look pleadingly into Jesus' eyes, and sadly, with tears, he just says, there is no way. The only way is me. I am the way. You roll your sin over into my conviction, or you take the punishment yourself, which is death. I don't want that. You don't want that. The judge doesn't want that. Take my deal. And so we do. We say, okay. I, I don't understand it, I, but, but I, I'm just going to, with childlike faith, I'm going to take the deal. I don't see any other way out of this. And we accept Jesus' offer. We roll all of our sin into his conviction. And then Jesus, our, our advocate, who is also the atonement for our sin, who has atoned for our sin, he's both. Now speaking once more as advocate, he says, uh, Father, judge, my client has agreed to roll all of, his, all of his crimes in under my docket, under my conviction which, as you know, the punishment is already paid. My client, therefore, I would like to offer, pleads not guilty. 
And the judge leans forward and affirms that decision, simply saying, I know what you have done. You have paid for it in full. Your blood is sufficient to cover this and every situation. And then he looks at you and he says, child, you are not guilty. Not guilty. That's, that's the promise. That is what John is saying about your sin and my sin. We have an advocate, Jesus, who is also at the same time our atonement for our sin. He has taken that sin upon himself. He has atoned for it. Now, I said picture an earthly court, didn't I? There's a reason for that. In the New Testament, the only courts that are referred to are the temple courts, the courts in which civil matters would be, would be disputed and so forth, but never does it refer to God being in a courtroom. He's on a throne. He's in a temple. He's in heaven. But he's not in a courtroom. So we need to develop this picture one more step. And, and let me see if this helps you. There's an old movie um, called Anna and the King. I know. Who, who ever saw the movie Anna and the King? Okay, I'm going to spoil it for you, but you'll want to go and watch it after this. Um, it's a fictitious account of, of some diaries left by a real person, Anna, a British schoolteacher who um, lived in Thailand for a number of years, took up a job to teach the king of Thailand, then known as Siam, to teach the king of Thailand's children. And she flies over and she arrives and she's got all of the strange and you know, hilarious cultural adjustments to make and so forth. It's a very, very different, different state of affairs. And the king has quite a number of of children. They do literally make up a school, a small classroom, all different ages. And, uh, and her job is to, is to give them a good, solid British education. Well, this is sometimes frustrated at, at times, but, but slowly she earns the trust of the king, and he employs her to do something else. She becomes almost, as it were, a diplomatic consultant. You see, he's got some big problems, um, territorial fighting and so forth, he's threatening his kingdom. And so he sees that it would be advantageous to ally myself with, with the British. Oh, yeah, there's the whole, you know, colonial element to that. But if I can ally myself with the Brits, I'm actually going to be in a much better position to hang on to my kingdom. So he wants to host them for this big dinner and show them that Thailand, or Siam, is actually a you know, a progressive country that they want to invest in and take an interest in. To do this, he's going to hold a massive banquet. To do this, he actually has to retrain his staff. And he uses Anna, the school teacher, to come and do it. But she comes in and, and she shows them, you know, how a garden would be set, like a country, you know, a country English garden, um, how the tables are set with beautiful white tablecloths to bring out the finest silver and, and where the knives go and how much distance there is between the knives and the forks and, and which wine glasses for which part of the meal. And, and the, th the whole thing, the whole scene is elaborate and beautiful and extravagant. The king comes to check on proceedings at one particular point. He comes at just the time where the waiters are being trained. They're carrying their trays up high with all of the crockery and so forth on them. And when the king enters, of course, there is a tradition, cultural, that when the king enters, everybody must bow, drop 
well, more than bow, drop to the floor face down when the king enters. So when he comes to check on how everything is going, there is suddenly the, the clatter of, of crockery breaking and so forth everywhere as the waiters drop to the floor and just everything is shattered. And Anna just hangs her head low and thinks this is never going to work. And the king says, okay, for this one banquet, this one moment, I will allow my servants to stand in my presence. And so he gives them this special dispensation and, you know, they're very nervous about that. If I do it, I die. Do it. Can I? Can I? And sure enough, they get trained and they're able to stand in his presence and continue to serve the guests. The night comes and it's not training anymore. It's the real thing. It's absolutely amazing. Um, it could have, been, could have been in anywhere in the world with all of the trimmings and so forth. There is an orchestra playing in the background. It's just a fantastic night. Everything is going perfectly until this one moment. Of all of his children, the king has a bit of a favorite. Whether he should or shouldn't, I don't know. She's, she's called Monkey. That's her nickname. And she's a little bit confused as to why on this particular night, dad hasn't come to kiss her goodnight. Where's, where's my goodnight kiss? Where's my, where's my goodnight, you know, um, uh, kind of greeting? And, and so she somehow manages to slip away from babysitters and so forth. And there's this one scene in the movie where she, she finds her way to the banquet and the king, amongst this aristocracy that is kind of, you know, so bigoted and, and so forth, and kind of nudging each other about this, this would-be Thai king who is trying to look good in front of the British, the British and so forth, in this moment where he stands to, to lift a toast to all of his guests and his friends, the silence is broken by his little daughter, Monkey, crying out, Daddy! And everyone turns around, and these, you know, British aristocrats with their wax moustaches frowning, you know, and so forth. And he sees the looks on their faces, and he's caught between, oh, this is obviously not how it's supposed to go. But then she's my daughter. And so he breaks with the British custom and adopts his own for that one moment. And he claps his hands and he says, come. And she runs with absolute confidence towards her, the king of Siam, who happens to also be her father, leaps into his arms for a wonderful embrace, as only a father and daughter could give, a father could give to his daughter, rather, and then sends her on her way, on her way so that she can sleep well that night. It's a lovely moment, and I, I sense in that it's a picture. It's a, it's a picture that takes us out of the courtroom into the throne room, into the very throne room of God, our Father, who now is not just God and he's not just judge and creator and everything else, but he is also daddy. And knowing that our advocate, Jesus Christ, has spoken up on our behalf, he is at once the atonement for our sin. He's rolled our crimes into his conviction. And at the same time, he is our advocate speaking on our behalf, indeed interceding and praying for us. Knowing that that is the case, we are able to boldly approach the throne of God. The Spirit of God who lives within us, the Spirit of Christ Jesus, 
He testifies with our spirit, that deep part, the real you. He testifies with our spirit that we really are children of God. And so we are able to rightly cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, yes, you're King. Yes, you're Creator. Yes, you are God. And I am on the one hand a mere mortal, but at the same time, I am your child. And deep within me, my spirit simply cries with childlike faith, Daddy. And we in that moment are accepted. That's the picture. That's the, that's the good news that John is sharing This is not walking in darkness, a denial of sin. This is walking in light. It's dealing with sin and showing that God has dealt with this once and for all. There need be no shame and no hesitation in your relationship with God. And so John finishes with these words. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of of the whole world. This is good news for you. This is good news for the whole world. Jesus has dealt with your world of sin, and he's also dealt with the sin of the world. That is just exceptionally good news. And it's captured here, go figure, because Satan tried to sow a lie, a deception into the early church, which had to be addressed by one of the early church fathers, John. So for all time, we have this passage to remind us, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, Jesus has you covered. The blood of Jesus has cleansed you, purified you from all sin for all time. Those words just resonate with you. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, Jesus has you covered. Can you say that? Just quietly. (laughs) All right, if you would like to say it out loud, we could do that too. All right. Jesus has me covered is what you're going to say in a moment. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, Ross, that was your moment. (laughs) Jesus has me covered. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, Jesus has me covered. You can hang on to that. You can hang on to that truth. Memorize 1 John 1, 9. So much more in this incredible book to, to explore together. But that right there should be a wonderful reassurance from now to you're in glory. It'll hold you. It'll hold you real good. Jesus. Thank you so much for your word. Um, Thank you for what it has to teach us. And thank you that you have us covered. You are our atonement. You are our advocate. Because you have purified me from my sin, everyone else here from their sin, we can have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus covers us. It's a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for all of your many blessings. Daddy, Father, We thank you that we can boldly approach your throne. That we can be confident and without shame as we turn our attention and affection to you. 
you have us absolutely covered. We love you. We thank you for your promises. As we sing now and worship and reflect with the words of this message, just be sown into our hearts, never to be removed. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If you'd like to stand with us, we're going to close in some worship. We're also going to have...